Hi listeners, the following episode on red flag laws and gun control was recorded just hours before we learned of the terrible shooting at the STEM Highlands Ranch School here in Colorado on May 7th. We were devastated to hear about the loss of Kendrick Castillo's life, and our hearts are breaking for his family, as well as for the other students who were injured in the shooting, and all of the students, teachers, staff, and parents who had to experience what is everyone's worst nightmare. All of us want our kids to feel safe at school, and these events make us angry and sad. We wanted to ensure you knew about the timeline for this episode related to the shooting. This is why you don't hear us mention it during our conversation. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Red Mom Caitlin. And I'm Blue Mom Shelly. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Red Mom, Blue Mom podcast. We're two moms with opposing political views who enjoy talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We believe in the importance of dialogue to help us learn from one another, especially when we have differences of opinion. Our goal isn't necessarily to agree, but where we disagree, to keep talking. We hope we inspire you to have real conversations on important issues with people with whom you disagree. And we hope our legislators are doing the same. Let's get started. listeners, it's Red Mom Caitlin. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a new law here in Colorado called the Extreme Risk Protection Orders Law, more commonly referred to as the Red Flag Law. The law was signed in April and will go into effect as of January 1st, 2020. The Extreme Risk Protection Orders, or ERPO system, will allow law enforcement to seize guns from those considered to be a threat to themselves or others. This law has been extremely controversial within Colorado, with supporters claiming that it will help reduce the number of guns in the hands of those who may use that weapon for harm, and critics claiming that it is unconstitutional, especially as it relates to due process. Colorado is the 15th state to adopt some type of red flag law. The Colorado law is named after Douglas County Sheriff's Deputy Zachary Parrish, who was killed in 2017 in what was described as an ambush-style attack. The shooter had a long history of mental illness and had been hospitalized in a Wyoming VA psych ward in 2014. Supporters of the law, including Colorado Governor Polis and Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock, have both stated that the law will save lives. And in the case of Deputy Parrish, Spurlock believes had such a law been in place that it may have prevented his death. Supporters of the law also believe the law will prevent suicides. Colorado State Representative Tom Sullivan, a sponsor of the original bill and whose son was killed in the 2012 Aurora Theater shooting, stated, quote, suicide by gun is our number one reason for deaths here in Colorado. Similarly, Andrew Romanoff, president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, stated that the red flag laws are not about gun control, but rather about preventing suicide. Now, before we get into the details of the Colorado Red Flag Law, I'd like to welcome our guest. We are very excited to have Laura Carnow join us today. Laura, we're so glad you're here. Can you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, And this is definitely a spicy topic, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, My name is Laura Carnow, and I'm a, um, gosh, I do a lot of things here in Colorado. Uh, I'm the founder of Faster Colorado, which is an organization that trains the many armed school staff that we have here in Colorado. I'm also a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, which is a national organization, um, all run by women, uh, on lots of different topics. I'm really looking for free market solutions to society's problems. Um, And if folks want more information there, they can check out IWF.org. But I do lots of other things in, in Colorado related to 
generally freedom. So thank you, Laura. Um, we're so glad you're here. This is Blue Mom Shelley, and for listeners who may be unfamiliar with the new red flag law, here's how it works. The law provides a process by which a family member or a household member or a law enforcement officer can petition a court in the respondent's county. The respondent would be the gun owner um, or prospective gun purchaser for a temporary extreme risk protection order, as Caitlin mentioned, uh, a temporary ERPO, so to speak. The court must hold a temporary ERPO hearing in person or by telephone within one business day. And while that notice of that temporary hearing goes out to the respondent, it may just be mailed. It does not likely provide an opportunity for the respondent to appear. And then at that temporary hearing, uh, the petitioner must show by a preponderance of the evidence that the respondent, quote, poses a significant risk of causing personal injury to self or others in the near future by having or purchasing a firearm. The petitioner has to use evidence which is made under oath, penalty of perjury, stating specific statements, actions, or facts that give rise to a reasonable fear of future danger acts, dangerous acts. And then the court has to say with particularity why it's uh, granting or denying the temporary ERPO. If it's granted, then a what I call a second hearing or a, uh, a more formal hearing is held within 14 days. For that hearing, the respondent must receive uh, service of the notice of the hearing. Uh, according to the Colorado Rules of Civil Procedure, he must get served. And he actually gets a court-appointed attorney, which is unusual in civil matters. And at that hearing, the respondent is now able to show evidence, cross-examine witnesses, and the petitioner has a burden to show by a higher bar of clear and convincing evidence, again, the specific statements, actions, or facts that show the uh, respondent poses a significant risk of causing personal injury to his, himself or others in the near future by having firearms. So if the petitioner meets that higher burden, the court can then issue the continuing ERPO for 364 days. The respondent must surrender his firearms to law enforcement when the temporary ERPO is issued. After the surrender, the respondent has several options, including informing law enforcement if they wish to sell, transfer, or have the firearms stored. And if respondent wants to challenge the, the issuance of the continuing ERPO, he can petition the court again one time during the 364-day period to have that order lifted if he can show by clear and convincing evidence that he does not pose a significant risk uh, by having firearms. And similarly, the petitioner could try to renew the order if he or she can again prove uh, that the order should be renewed. When the order is issued, it is provided to the background check database. So it comes up if, if the respondent tries to buy a new gun. And when the order expires, the information gets removed from that database. So that's how the law works. So I think the concept of a red flag law is, of course, a good idea. I think everyone would agree that we want to keep guns out of the hands of people who have mental health issues um, that may want to hurt themselves or others. The challenge, of course, is whether or not this new law in Colorado raises issues with constitutionality. And ultimately, how does it impact efforts to address or improve mental health? So as we kick things off today, Laura, um, can you tell us if you agree with Governor Polis and uh, Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock that this law will, in fact, save lives? Uh, in a in a word, no, I don't agree with them. Um, and I, I appreciate you starting out by saying we all want to make sure that mentally ill people don't get access to anything that could harm people. And we all agree 
on that, regardless of what side of the aisle we're on. And what a lot of folks don't know um, about mental illness and, excuse me, firearms ownership is if you have been adjudicated mentally ill, you're already in the database. You, you can't go legally buy a firearm. And a lot of people, when we talk about something like a red flag bill, say, well, of, of course mentally ill people shouldn't get guns, but they don't know that there already is a, me- a mechanism in place. And the difference between the current state and what the, the ERPO, the Extreme Risk Protection Order law says, is that adjudicated part, adjudicated mentally ill, um, where the red flag bill says, um, if there's a suspicion um, versus adjudicated mentally ill, and I think therein lies the um, the difference. Um, the other interesting thing when you bring up um, Sheriff Tony Spurlock, he's one of the very few law enforcement members who believes that this is going to help. Most of the county sheriffs throughout Colorado completely disagree with him very vehemently. And there are a number of folks that I've talked to specifically about his claim that if that law had been in place, that it would have saved Deputy uh, Zachary Parrish. And most law enforcement I, I talked to says no, because if if deputies had showed up and said, you know, we're here to take your guns, would would the the bad guy have responded any differently than he did, he probably would have been even more angry. Um, so just in, in that one situation, there, I, I'm sort of dubious about that claim. Um, but we are, I think we all are correct to say, is this something that's going to work? Um, and we should look at where it's been used in the rest of the country, the rest of the world, to say, um, is it going to work? Because we shouldn't do things we know won't work. And Laura, uh, you know, I think there there are many examples, though, even though these red flag laws are just starting to pass, so it's only been maybe a matter of months since they've been in effect in, in other states. My understanding is that so far in Maryland, Florida, Washington, just in the past several months, um, these laws have been invoked in multiple cases where there has been threats, significant threats against schools. As for uh, Officer Parrish, you know, I think many people knew he was he was crazy and dangerous. The Douglas County um, police had sort of a rap sheet on him, having responded to his episode several times. But he hadn't committed a crime. He hadn't been adjudicated mentally ill. And you, you referenced um, that if someone has been adjudicated mentally ill, as in um, by a court, which is a tremendous process that very few um, people, certainly none of the mass shooters have, have gone through. In, in in the killer of Officer Parrish's case, there was no way to remove his guns under the existing laws. So this, you know, the, the idea of these red flag laws is the the way the officers would have, I think their position in, in that case is they would have had this tool to, to remove the guns. Similarly with the Parkland shooting, um, which I know you've spoken about, uh, I think there were 30 people who knew about the shooter's violent behavior, the shooter's violent behavior and law enforcement had been called on him many times, but he legally bought his guns. He had never been convicted convicted of a crime and he was not adjudicated mentally ill, so he was able to buy guns. For those of you listeners who are outside Colorado, you might not be familiar with another um, incident that happened here in Metro Denver a couple weeks ago. Uh, our schools uh, were canceled for a day, 400,000 students missed school while the FBI hunted for a 
a 18-year-old um, high school senior who had arrived from Florida infatuated with the Columbine uh, massacre 20 years later and she had made credible threats. Um, she had passed a background check, uh, purchased a pump shotgun and, uh, and she was a, a credible threat to schools and I wondered that day if some sort of red flag law would prevent her or people like her from having purchased that that weapon because she had posted things online there were there were there was evidence that someone could have presented at one of these erpo hearings that we just referred to where um, perhaps you know one of these shooters guns could be removed okay those were a lot of things let me try and take them uh one by one so when we talk about um, somebody adjudicated mentally ill, and that's already on the books. Um, there is another tool that, that law enforcement has had for ages, uh, which doesn't say remove a tool from somebody. It says remove the person from the situation. And this is my strong um, my strong preference for a lot of reasons I'll, I'll mention in a second. Um, and this is the 72-hour mental health hold. And police today, based on their own observations, based on family members or neighbors or whoever saying we've got a problem here, uh, they can get somebody taken into that 72-hour hold in order to have that person evaluated. The reason that I prefer that kind of a situation over remove a firearm, um, let's say, uh, let's just say we have a married couple and the wife says, husband's got a gun. He says he's going to kill me. He's crazy. Uh, let's say under ERPO, police come in and just remove the firearm. They didn't remove the knives. They didn't remove um, the rope to hang her with. They didn't remove hands to strangle her with. They didn't remove a car to run her over with. Um, they just took one of the tools. And um, firearms aren't the only tool that people use to harm other people. And so if we're really worried about that individual, then we should take that individual away. And we, we talk so much about um, about mental health, and we're not addressing mental health. Even, even though um, in the legislature during all this red flag discussion, they talk about mental health, nothing in this bill does anything for mental health. It simply removes a tool from that person. Um, so so I, I think there is an interim um, tool that, that law enforcement has and prefers. I've heard a number of sheriffs mention that um, the legislature provided them a tool they'd never asked for and don't want. Well, in the Officer Parrish case, that officer was responding, was trying to put the shooter in a mental health hold uh, when he was killed. Um, and in the domestic violence examples you gave, I don't know that there is a basis if, if someone is angry with their spouse and threatening them uh, to put them in a mental health hold. So whatever the existing procedures you know, are, it's clear they're, they're not working when we have, or they're not working sufficiently in my view when we have mass shootings occurring. Sure, and if I could just address the, the question about um, two Florida things that you brought up. One was the Parkland um, High School massacre, and, and the other was that 18-year-old uh, high school student who came here to Colorado. Um, I, I will put those under the category of government failed the citizens at every single step. And the, the Parkland killer, the school resource officer, school administrators, the FBI, local sheriff, he even called the police on himself, and nobody did anything. Had had the um, school resource officer, the sheriff's office, Broward County Sheriff's Office, had they done what they were supposed to, what the law t says that they should do, 
he would have been entered into that system. Um, he, he may have even been in a mental health hold, but nobody did anything. Um, the young woman who came here from Florida to Colorado, um, and by the way, Florida has uh, red flag legislation. Nobody turned her in. So just because there is red flag legislation, if still, if nobody wants to tell on them, so to speak, um, you know, go to a judge versus go to go to law enforcement, if they don't get entered in, no, no law is going to protect people. Right. But I think that's the supporters argument is that there's, well, those students were failed at Parkland there. Um, this these laws would provide an additional mechanism to uh, have, you know, prevented the shooting. Um, I just wanted to come back, uh, Laura, on your comment about, you know, the Colorado bill and what does it do to really address mental health and do we remove the tools or do we remove the person from the situation? I just wanted to make one maybe small correction. Um, the bill does provide, and it's very nominal, um, but it does state that when the law enforcement officer is serving the respondent with that temporary ERPO, um, concurrently with the notice of then kind of the next hearing, you know, within 14 days, it does say that they should include referrals to appropriate resources including domestic violence, behavioral health, and counseling resources. So they should. They should. Yeah. It doesn't require it, but there is at least some very lightweight provision in the law to at least share some sort of referral information. Um, but I agree with you. Ultimately, I don't think it's, right. it's solving the problem. Um, I wanted to move on, if we could, uh, Laura, as I mentioned in the introduction, the law has been very controversial and you have already addressed the fact that there are many uh, sheriffs across the state of Colorado that have come forward and kind of proclaimed publicly that they're not going to enforce this and they're not going to uh, require their officers to do so. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the concerns related to due process, because I think that's been one of the big questions is, is this law constitutional? And I think the Colorado law, my understanding, is different from what some other states have enacted in terms of um, the, the standard of evidence that's required to even petition for, a, for an ERPO, et cetera. One piece is this issue of ex parte and the fact that that initial temporary ERPO can actually be issued by the court without the respondent, without that gun owner, gun owner being a party to that conversation. Um, so that's my layman's understanding of ex parte. I uh, wanted to just talk about that. And the reason why I bring that up, and Laura, you mentioned, let's look at how other states have done and what the results have been before we implement something that may or may not work in Colorado. Uh, one thing that I read from the testimony of Dave Kopel, who has testified about this issue in front of the, um, the U.S. Senate, and that's posted on our website at redmombluemom.com, in Connecticut, where they've had red flag laws since 1999, so quite a few years of experience and, and history, um, their data shows that one-third of gun confiscation or red flag orders are wrongly issued against innocent people. And so in Connecticut, the specific stat was that once a judge ultimately hears the respondent side of the issue, about 32% of those confiscation orders are overturned. So as we think about due process and constitutionality as the respondent, as the gun owner, that ex parte situation to grant a temporary ERPO is one thing that I know that has come up as a concern. Laura, do you want to talk about that? Right. And, and, and that's, I think, one of the biggest issues is that this can happen without um, without the say, um, without the input, I should say, of the gun owner. And what's interesting, all ACLU 
uh, groups are not created equal. Um, Colorado ACLU has not um, weighed in on this concern, but in Rhode Island, the ACLU said, no, you can't do this without due process. You can't do this in an ex parte fashion. You know, my sense on, you know, sort of justice, the presumption of innocence, which is so, um, so critical for um, the basis of the laws in our country, um, I would expect that this was a place where uh, the ACLU on the left and and law-abiding gun owners on the right would would be able to to um, come to terms with that. Um, but yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, when somebody is accused and does not have a chance to face their accuser, uh, does not have a chance um, to even know that 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 they're being accused, uh, that's definitely a problem. And and I want to respond to that because I I think. I hear both of you in terms of this, um, the argument on due process and constitutionality. I, as a lawyer, I think it's an important and good point. Uh, and I know it's the biggest sort of argument against the red flag laws. Listeners, for those of you who don't know, you know what we mean when we say due process, due process is your fair, uh, your right to a fair legal process before you're put in prison for a crime or before your property is taken away from you. It's afforded to us by the 14th Amendment, which says that no state shall impair the life, liberty, uh, uh, I'm sorry, should deprive any person of life, liberty, uh, or property without due process of law. So what we're referring to here is, you'll recall when I summarized the law, that first hearing, the temporary hearing, which happens within a day after a petition is filed, um, so as to avoid emergencies or um, you know, shootings, uh, in that temporary hearing, the respondent may not even be there. And, and so they don't get a chance to defend themselves. And, and that is, I admit, a due process issue. Um, again, the reason for that is so that the, the guns can be removed quickly from that person. Uh, and then within 14 days, you get your real hearing. And that's where I think overall the law is quite reasonable and due process is afforded. So within 14 days, you get a real hearing. As we t- discussed, you 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 know you get to confront your witnesses. You um, you get a actually court-appointed counsel. Uh, the petitioner has the burden to show by clear and convincing evidence that you're a threat. And so I think due process is more than provided in this case. It's very similar. This law is very similar to other areas that are identical. Um, and where there there hasn't been any constitutionality challenge. For example, temporary restraining orders. If you've ever known anyone who got a temporary restraining order, they can pretty easily walk into court and say that they feel imminent threat of harm from so-and-so and get a temporary restraining order, but it's not gonna be made permanent unless they come back and there's a real trial. That person's gonna be there, you have to face them, you have, you know, they can cross-examine you, and then you'll get a permanent restraining order. And in those cases, uh, similarly, the the respondent is losing some liberty because, you know, suddenly you've got this temporary restraining order against you. You can't come within a thousand feet of someone, and maybe they live right by your or where you know where you live or your your office or whatever. Um, similarly, with the same amount of due process, that's how we've decided that temporary versus permanent restraining orders are handled. In my area of the law, probate. This happens um, in the same context. Uh, there's gar- what's called guardianship and conservatorship cases, which is where, let's say, an elderly person, someone goes in and gets an emergency order, again, without the elderly person present, because it's done very quickly, and they have to show that the person is at risk of harming themselves. 
and that they can't manage their own affairs. So, you know, mom is leaving the stove on and um, giving away money, <laughs> my future inheritance. And so they, uh, a court can appoint a guardian, which is someone who takes control over the physical person who decides where you're going to live, what health care you're going to receive, or a conservator, which is someone who takes control over your money. It's a tremendous loss of liberty. Um, you can lose all of your freedom over your person and all of your control over your money. And similarly, in that temporary emergency hearing, you might not even be there. But within in, in that law, similarly, within 14 days, you're afforded a real hearing where you get to be there and you get served um, and you get to defend yourself. And uh, and those laws have not been challenged as constitutional. The, the red flag law now in 15 states has yet to be challenged as constitutional. I think if it is, it will pass muster because these are processes that are in other areas of our law that are quite reasonable. And what's the big loss of liberty you know, losing your gun for, say, 14 days. Yeah, so so I see a big difference um, in a temporary restraining order that might limit my ability to go to a place. And I agree that that is a loss of liberty. But the loss of my liberty, if I were the, um, the subject of a, a red flag um, order, is that I would lose my ability to defend myself, and and that could risk my life. So, uh, Caitlin mentioned in it was Connecticut the one third number, a third is huge. Let's just say it's even a percent or two percent or five percent. If somebody's firearm is taken from them, and let's assume it's their only one, um, many of these things happen during divorces, during split ups, right? Um, if if a husband wanted to c- harm. The, the wife, the ex-wife, the ex-girlfriend, the whomever, it would be very easy for him under this sort of a law to say, she has a gun and she threatened me. Police go take her gun because that's what the law says they can do. And the husband comes over and harms the, the wife or the ex-wife. We have deprived her in a situation we just don't know enough about because she hasn't had her hearing. And it doesn't take... Um, for, it takes less than 14 days for somebody to come back and harm her. Well, isn't that exactly like what happens in a temporary restraining order? You walk in and you say, oh, my, my, my husband's threatening me, and they suddenly take away his liberty for a number of days until you get that permanent hearing. Um, and similarly with those orders, much like the one-third number in Connecticut, permanent restraining orders are rarely issued. You have all kinds of people going in to get a TRO and then can't get the permanent restraining order because they can't show they can't meet the burdens right. so you've got you know if you, whether that's improperly issued or not you have um you have a, a lot of examples like that the idea that you're going to lose the right to defend yourself in your home for up to 14 days to me doesn't sound like it outweighs the potential benefit of you know saving lives and when we're talking about innocent or guilty um you mentioned the presumption of innocent these the that's in a criminal context. We're not talking about innocent or guilty people in a criminal criminal context. I'll concede that lots of people who have an ERPO entered against them, a temporary ERPO, are not guilty. I mean, they don't have any criminal record. They haven't committed a crime. And in fact, that's why this law, this law is designed to be the way to take away their weapons, having had no criminal history. So, you know, some of them are technically innocent, but, uh, and, and, and as you point out, for some of them, a permanent or a continuing ERPA won't be entered. So they've, their time has been wasted and they've lost their 
guns for up to 14 days. But um, I think that uh, the danger in not having this is, you know, I think the law is worth taking that precaution. I don't, I don't think that's a terrible inconvenience to lose your weapon for up to 14 days. Yeah, I, I, this is Caitlin. I totally disagree. And, and I think, you know, if you go to a woman who is fearful of her life, who has a, a firearm in her home to protect herself and her family, and there's a situation where she may not have access to that weapon for 14 days because an ex-husband, as Laura was just describing that scenario, has made a false claim. And for whatever reason, it's been considered sufficient enough to grant a, a temporary ERPO to remove her weapons from her house. That's a long time. That is a long time. 14 days is a long time, especially with the error rate of, of 30% plus um, being overturned that we've seen in Connecticut. That's a long time to, debri to deprive someone of their right to defend themselves. I, I don't think it's right to just brush that off as, as not a big deal or it's worth the trade-off to save some lives. Um, I think that's a really serious conversation. So I have a lot of concerns about that personally. But, but what you're talking about is false claims. You're talking about, and, and as I mentioned, you're, you're, you've got to go under oath, penalty of perjury. There's always the risk in, in all cases, civil or criminal, that someone's going to get on the stand and lie. And we don't avoid passing laws because someone might law, lie. I mean, um, yeah, there's a risk of fraud, although this, this law actually has protections for um, for people who are lying to get these orders, uh, so I don't I don't think that the 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 bizarre far out example of someone lying to get a, a temporary ERPO um, is I think that could apply against any law. And, and you're right, there is some protection in the law, my understanding, uh, against false claims, but not within that 14 days, right? That That's not going to be resolved within that 14-day temporary ERPO. And Laura, before you chime in, because I think you probably want to respond too, I just wanted to touch on too, Shelley, I think one of the points you made was around constitutionality and the fact that Colorado is the 15th state to enact some sort of red flag law. I'm certainly not the expert on what the other 14 states are doing, but I do think one key difference based on my reading is that standard of evidence. And Laura, I think you mentioned this at the beginning. So in, in Colorado, that temporary ERPO can be granted based on a, a petitioner coming in with a preponderance of the evidence, I think is the is the standard. And Shelley, certainly you could educate us on what that means legally, but that's quite different than what happens in other states. So for example, in Connecticut and Indiana, which, which both have red flag laws, the petitions must be filed by law enforcement. You can't file it if you're a family or a household member. In Connecticut specifically, before that petition can be filed, there has to have been an independent investigation. Uh, in Vermont, the petition must come from a state's attorney or the office of the attorney general. Uh, in Colorado, there's no requirement uh, for that evidence to be corroborated or, or investigated or really be proven beyond that preponderance of an evidence standard um, when you compare it to other states. So that's where I think this, this question of constitutionality, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say, well, it hasn't been challenged in any other state, so it's probably fine here in Colorado. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing what you said, Shelley. Um, but I think there are some important differences there in the law. Laura, what are your yeah. thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. There's some important differences. And, you know, when we when we go back to what we talked about in the beginning, you know, due process and, and you know, being able to face your accusers, I would put this in that same bucket. Um, what is that standard of, um, of evidence? I'm not saying it, I'm sure, in the proper legal way. But that is definitely a big difference. I'd like to also address uh, the discussion about how these ERPOs compare to a, uh, a temporary restraining order. And because I think that's a logical way to think about this, um, that we are depriving people of, you know, some of their liberties somewhere. The big difference that I would like to point out to the listeners is 
if if there's a temporary restraining order that removes somebody's liberty for that temporary period of time, they can't go certain places, there's far less likelihood that that will result in that person's death or injury. My concern on this is that it will result in somebody's death or injury and things that aren't uh, reversible. And there's um, lots of stuff um, in different places of the country. Um, Carol Bowne in New Jersey comes to mind who had a restraining order against her violent ex. She was um, waiting for her gun to be approved. New Jersey is very different than Colorado. You have to wait a very long period of time for a permit. And um, he, the ex came and killed her in her driveway while she was waiting for her gun permit to be approved. And so it's not exactly the same thing, but it's the government, the government making decisions on how we should be able to defend ourselves. And I know that this is a really tough discussion, because we're trying to balance the, uh, the safety of individuals or the community at large from somebody who might do something versus the right of the people who are completely innocent and potentially vulnerable. And that's where where I really worry about this and being a a, a gun rights advocate and a and a woman, I hear from a lot of women with stories just like you're talking about, you know, that they they needed something because their life was in imminent danger. Uh, 14 days is too long. An hour might be too long for somebody. Um, there are other laws in Colorado that make it difficult for a woman in an urgent situation to get a gun to protect herself quickly. Um, so, so I know that this is a tough conversation because we're trying to balance those two. I'm always going to balance the needs of the the innocent people, the law-abiding people, to choose to make sure that they can keep themselves and their families safe. That's where I'll always come down. And that's a that's a um, a common argument by the gun lobby that I've always had trouble with and it's sort of this um you know this again you 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 cite to there's vulnerable women who need to protect themselves with uh weapons um and there's other examples where maybe you know the gun lobby is saying good guys should have guns we want guns in the hands of good guys to protect us from the bad guys that whole line of um of thinking the good guys uh, versus the bad guys I don't buy it for a couple of reasons. I don't think that the examples out there of people successfully defending themselves with guns are very prevalent or prevalent at all. I know there's a study, and this is in a Newsweek article that we've cited on Red Mom, Blue Mom. It says that from 2007 to 2011, when, when there were roughly 6 million non-fatal violent crimes each year, 99.2% of those victims did not protect themselves with a gun, despite in the United States are having 310 million guns out there, which is several times more per capita than any other country. And so I think the data shows that having more guns and have everyone having this right to, to have a, you know, any kind of weapon with no restrictions whatsoever to supposedly protect themselves is, isn't true. And the data, you know, just shows that it's not true. In another study of 198 cases of unwanted entry into a home in one city, um, they found that the invader is twice as likely to obtain the victim's gun than for the victim to use it in self, self-defense. So I, I don't think that, um, that there's, there's much real evidence of sort of the good guys defending against the bad guys. And, and I, 
whatever is there, I don't think it's 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 worth the risk. You know, as you point out, we're talking about weighing things here of, of allowing everyone to own a semi-automatic weapon with no restrictions whatsoever. I think I think that um, poses an unacceptable risk to all of our lives. And, and I actually thought that the gun lobby would be in favor of something like the red flag law because it's specifically designed to let, let responsible gun owners keep their guns while keeping guns out of the hands of bad guys. So for example, the, the people we're talking about preventing here are people who might be on the verge of committing a mass shooting. So I thought that the gun lobby would, would you know, be in favor of this sort of reasonable protection of where, where, that doesn't impose dramatically uh, restrictions on a responsible gun owner's rights. I hear what you're saying, Shelley, and I, I think the statistics you quoted are interesting. I think just because 99 plus percent of people chose not to defend themselves in a violent confrontation with a gun certainly should not infringe on my right or Laura's right or anybody else's right to choose to, to do that and take that line of self-defense for ourselves and our family. I do take a little bit of issue with using the phrase gun lobby. So I'm Caitlin. I'm your friend. I'm not the gun lobby. Laura is Same. our new friend. She's not the gun lobby. I'm a member of the NRA. I don't know, Laura, if you are or not. Um, we are gun owners in our family. I grew up with gun owners. So I, I think I think to kind of default to this position of the quote unquote gun lobby as this big bad behemoth, and often that's conflated with the NRA, um, to me is not is not necessarily fair only because there are so many millions of Americans out there like Laura and myself that are responsible gun owners. So that, that was the first thing I wanted to address. Um, I think you also mentioned, and I may be paraphrasing Shelley, so correct me if wrong, um, the fact that anybody can buy any type of weapon and is that the right thing to do? That's not true. There are tons of, uh, of gun laws, you know, that vary state by state, of course, around, you know, what types of weapons can be purchased, things like that semi-automatic weapons. I don't know, Laura, if you want to address that at all to talk about what that really means, or I'll turn it over to you to maybe respond a little bit more as well to Shelley's comments. Sure. And, and I'll um, respond to a few of those things. I um, am a longtime NRA member, but I would not consider myself a part of the gun lobby. And I think um, that's um, a shorthand for some people to say that it's this big thing out there. Um, but the, I mean, the NRA is not the only organization out there. There's lots of organizations out there that support our choice of self-defense. Um, and they'd be toothless if it wasn't for 5 million or however many members they have. So um, I take that, I take the same sort of um same sort of issue. Wanted to address your was it your Newsweek article? Correct. Okay. Lots and lots of research out there on defensive gun use. Lots of it. Um, the one that most people point to is the Centers for Disease Control did a fairly long study. Uh, when they came out with their salute their uh, results, they promptly hid the. Um, they shouldn't say hid it. It was on their website, but. Nobody talked about it. There was no press release. Um, they estimated between 500,000 and 2 million a year defensive uses of firearms. And this was based on based on the study that they did interviewing um, crime victims. So if folks want to see that, it's on the CDC website on defensive gun use. Um, let's say, for example, that there were five people and not 500,000. Let's say there were five. I would still support the right of those five people to have saved their lives um, with the tool of their choice. And I, I heard Caitlin um, use the phrase, the right to choose. And I, I 
I very, very much look at self-defense that way. I happen to choose a firearm. It's my choice. Guns are not for everybody. Absolutely not. If somebody prefers pepper spray, if somebody prefers a baseball bat, no skin off my nose. I want people to be able to choose. Even the pacifist who says, I am never going to harm somebody even if they're harming me. Okay, that's also your choice. We talk about pro-choice in, in different uh, different ways in our kind of political jargon. Um, I'm for lots of different choice, um, including the choice of a woman to choose her own self-defense, where her kids go to school, those kind of things. So I think we probably forgot to talk about that. I read a book. Um, I sometimes forget. It's been a few years, but um, I, it's called Government Ruins Nearly Everything. And I talk about, and this is for the left and the right, uh, do you trust people to make choices for themselves or do you think government should control it? And again, for both sides of the aisle. And I think the last thing that you asked me to address, Caitlin, was different kinds of firearms. Yeah, just yeah. the reference to semi-autom- yeah. semi-automatic weapons, which I, I know is a, a common term that's used in, in this discussion. Sure. And so um, without getting into the operation of all kinds of firearms, um, number one, I'll say, first of all, that, um, that law-abiding gun owners are we have the word law-abiding right in our name, but concealed carry holders are more law-abiding than law enforcement. And um, I've got the statistics for that um, in my book. So it's not the concealed carry holder, law-abiding gun owner that we should be concerned about. It's the criminals. Let's you know be very, very clear on that. Semi-automatic firearm. All that means is that every time you pull the trigger, one round fires. When people say like assault rifle, they may be talking about an automatic rifle that you pull the trigger and multiple rounds fire. Those are not in common use. You have to jump through hoops on fire since like the 1930s to be able to have something like that. Um, But a semi-automatic rifle is literally a common sporting rifle or hunting rifle. That's how rifles work. That's how non-revolver handguns work. Semi-auto refers to once um, once a round is downrange, another one enters the the chamber. If that's an easy enough, an easy enough and, description. And, and how do you feel about <clears throat> restrictions on bump stocks? Which uh, my understanding is that they speed up the the pace at which you can fire the, as you point out, the semi-automatic weapon. Yeah, I think whenever we um, point to a tool and say this tool is bad or that tool is bad, we get ourselves into this funky place of saying the tool is the problem. I am a longtime gun owner. I had never heard, seen, touched anything, a bump stock before the Las Vegas shooting. And it's something you can um, create that mechanism with commonly purchased items at a hardware store. So I, 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 don't, I don't look at that and say, everything's going to be solved if we simply ban bump stocks. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's useful. I think the useful thing is, who are the people who are doing bad things with whatever tools, um, whether it's a firearm or a different tool? We, we had a murder in my family, gosh, almost 20 years ago now, not using a firearm, using common implements that are available at a, a hardware store. I would never say that we should, we should ban those items. It was the bad people who killed my brother. It's it's the people, not the not the item. Well, and that's where I strongly disagree. It's uh, one thing that all of these gun deaths have in common is the guns, regardless of the various circumstances in which. And if if more guns meant a safer society, then we wouldn't have one of the highest gun homicide rates in the world because we have more guns than anywhere in the world. So I think there's a clear link be- between 
um, uh, gun homicide rates and uh, guns themselves. I think the tool is the problem. You mentioned choice. I guess my problem with that is, uh, while I don't want to impede someone's choice uh, in terms of owning weapons, I want my, you know, if that choice impedes uh, or protections of that choice impedes my, my kids sort of right to go to school without being harmed or to a movie or to a concert without being killed, then I, and then I, I don't think that the choice should be a free one. I'm going to back up in just, just a minute and ask about the NRA and, and I apologize uh, if my sort of reference to the gun lobby is too broad. My understanding of uh, the NRA, which you both mentioned you're members of, um, and I've seen you on NRA TV, you spoke very eloquently. Um, there's some controversy related to the NRA and whether um, it receives a lot of funding from gun manufacturers themselves. So whether this, um, this push is actually pushing for gun owners' rights, as you are saying, or whether it's just working to protect uh, an industry's right to sell guns to anyone or a whole lot of people. And can I ask, Laura, do, 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 your, do you or your organizations, uh, Faster or Independence Institute, do they receive any funding from the NRA? Um, I don't receive any money from the NRA at all. Um, I'll say since you mentioned that um, that you've seen me on NRA TV, it's sort of the um, media arm, I guess, of, um, of the NRA. I've appeared many, 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 I don't know, 200 times on NRA TV. I am not their spokesperson. I've never taken a dime from them. Um, I did some um, uh, video with them, and they offered mileage and um, lunch for it, and I declined politely. Um, so uh, just like I would speak to any media, you, you ladies included, um, if somebody wants to hear what I have to say, I will absolutely go there. What's interesting is that the times that gun sales have surged the most is when we have anti-gun politicians threatening to take guns. So um, I think uh, if if we if all of us as um, law-abiding citizens are left to our own and we remain law-abiding, um, I, I don't think we'd see the big spikes in gun sales. Um, it, it's the fear that someday I might not be able to. Um, and I, I certainly I certainly fall into that bucket. Um, I remember uh, going to buy a, a firearm on a day when President Obama had a town hall and said things that I thought, you know what, that's not okay. This is my choice. And, um, you know, it was just then it was a busy day in the gun store. So um, the NRA has a purpose. I think it's federal, um, federal lobbying, state lobbying. And I appreciate that they're there. But I also don't think that they are the only reason we have the gun laws we have. I think it's uh, law abiding gun owners who take an interest in that. Um, I wanted to just switch gears if we could, Shelley, if you don't mind. One of the other elements, I think, of this law, coming back to the point that some of the sheriffs across the uh, the state of Colorado have voiced concern, is around the potential for violence uh, on their officers. And, and we touched mm -hmm. on before that there's this gun confiscation element of the law. So once the temporary ERPO is issued, it's law enforcement's responsibility to go and collect those firearms um, from that respondent. And, and again, there may be technically notice that's sent, but whether or not the respondent has seen it, who knows. Um, and again, that's the example, I think, Shelley, that you mentioned 
mentioned with um, the Douglas County Sheriff's Deputy Parrish um, that he was actually maybe going out and responding to uh, something similar where he was going to try and, and collect firearms. And, and obviously that turned out uh, uh, to be a very terrible situation. So I wanted to just maybe bring that up. Uh, and Shelly, I'm particularly interested in your opinion. I think I could probably guess what Laura's thoughts are. Shelly, do you have concerns about that in terms of the potential for this red flag law as it's defined here in Colorado to actually result in violent, potentially deadly confrontations for the law enforcement officers. So I'd love to hear, Shelley, what your thoughts are there. By the way, I just want to correct you on one thing about Officer Parrish. He was not going to collect guns because there was no legal way for him to do that. He was going to do a mental health hold um, on that shooter uh, when he was killed. Um, Listen, I am someone who appreciates uh, our officers, um, as you know. I think most people do, in terms of the fact that they're out there risking their lives every day and doing all kinds of things that uh, are designed to protect us and uh, at the same time uh, are dangerous for them. So every day officers uh, make an arrest, they, which is dangerous. They respond to a domestic violence call, which officers have been killed doing that, where a person has guns. Uh, they respond to robberies, assaults. Um, every day they risk their lives to make the rest of us safer. And I don't think enforcing a red flag law is any different. They, again, it gives them the tool to um, keep the rest of us safer. So if this person has been adjudicated to have a significant risk of harming others in the near future, then the officer is. Um, you know, enforcing that law and, and doing the service of removing the guns from that person to protect the rest of us. So I think it's, uh, it's much, like, much like other areas of, of their job. Yeah, what's interesting with my work with Faster Colorado, where we train um, the the armed school staff that are out there, we work with active duty law enforcement trainers. They, all of them have SWAT experience, all of them have law enforcement training experience. And why that's important is um, we need to make sure, obviously, they know how to instruct. Um, they've trained cops, and they're they're teaching these armed staffers the same thing they would teach a SWAT team member on how to stop an active killer. That's it. One very narrow skill set, stop an active killer. What's interesting, um, because of my work with them, and they're um, all um, associated with their SWAT teams and their respective agencies, I talked to all of them about about this thing that happened with, um, with Zachary Parrish. Um, every single one of them, and this is very much echoed by most law enforcement leadership, so, you know, sheriffs in uh, Colorado, is that had they gone to collect firearms versus had they gone to do a mental health hold, they don't think it would have been any different. Um, Sheriff Spurlock says something different. That's fine. He is um, one of the very few voices saying that. I, I listen to that um, that vast chorus of law enforcement who is as opposed to this. Now, would they have been opposed to um, a red flag law like was? Uh, passed in another state? Maybe not. Um, there are significant differences between what we passed here in Colorado and what has been passed in other states. And if um, if I recall, and I'm sorry I didn't look this up before I, um, before I came, I believe that there are some red flag laws that the NRA has been fully supportive of because it has the, uh, the due process um, more similar uh, to what we're talking about might be ideal. So, so you know, when we're talking about you know, being opposed to red flag legislation. I, I don't want folks to get the idea that any of us, Caitlin and, and me included, are against doing something to keep people from doing bad things. I think we're all for that. But 
the devil is in the details on every law. And I think the the details on this isn't what the majority of law enforcement wants to see. They think it makes their officers less safe and has no due process. So that's where I think our differences lie. I would be having a completely different conversation if it was if it had the due process that I think most people are interested in. Along those same lines, Laura, I'm curious, you said you might, you implied you might be supportive of certain red flag laws, or maybe certain other reasonable uh, gun control measures. Can you can you tell us? um, Well, let me ask it this way. Um, You know, I I think there are conservatives, and, and I think a majority of Americans think that some reasonable gun control measures are appropriate. Um, I understand that President Trump uh, at some point spoke out in favor of red flag laws. Uh, he convened the Federal Commission on School Safety after the Parkland and Santa Fe shootings, which endorsed red flag laws as an effective tool to prevent uh, gun violence. So I, I guess there are some and maybe certain laws where conservatives agree that the reasonableness of the regulation outweigh, outweighs um, uh, the, the risk. And so when we're talking about what may, might be, in your opinion, reasonable gun legislation, I want to ask you a tough question um, to compare your position on this red flag law in Colorado with your position on past gun legislation um, in Colorado that others might have viewed as similarly reasonable. I know you worked on the um, recalling two Colorado legislators in 2013 who had supported gun control measures that were passed here in Colorado yep. after Sandy Hook and after the Aurora shooting in 2012. And those uh, two laws that were passed were background checks in Colorado, which um, was w- widely popular and I think has been held to be constitutional by many courts. And the other one was on uh, magazines holding more than 15 rounds, mm-hmm. which has also been upheld as constitutional by several courts. So how do you respond to the um, the criticism that you might be working on the extreme side of these gun issues by opposing what I think many people would see as a reasonable um you know, reasonable gun control legislation. Sure. And, you know, we started this out talking about what works. And if we all can agree that the goal is less gun violence, and in my my book, this is how I address it, less gun violence. I think we all can agree that's a, that's a good goal, less gun violence. However we get there, less gun violence. If what you're talking about has been demonstrated to have no effect or to increase gun violence, that's not good. We shouldn't do those things. In 2013, we had a legislative session where um, formerly pro-gun Democrats or fairly gun-neutral Democrats, Michael Bloomberg's organization, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember what it was called at that point, and every time for gun safety, it's had some iterations, got the ear of some folks in the Colorado uh, state legislature and pushed through gun, gun control bills similar to what they've done in the rest of the country. I was very proudly involved in the um, the recalls in the fall of 2013 of Senate President John Morse and Senator Angela Harone um, of Colorado Springs and Pueblo, respectively. Let's start with the universal background checks. This is one of those terms, again, when you say background checks, it makes people think we don't have them today. Um, every state either participates in NICS, which is the National Instant Check System, or they have a state version of NICS. And it's, I go in to buy a gun in a gun store, they put in all the stuff in their computer, depending on how busy um, Colorado Bureau of Investigation is, it might come back in 10 minutes, it might come back in 10 hours. Um, but within three days, I'm going to be able to pick up my firearm as long as I pass that test. That is 
that happens everywhere. Um, and I'm trying to remember the year that was passed. It's been a very long time. So to say that we passed a background check bill in 2013 and that I, Laura Carno, was opposed, and I saw so I must not be common sense, here's what it added on to those instant checks. If, um, if Caitlin and I are neighbors, and I know your husband's a very nice man, but let's say you guys just split up and he's threatening to come harm you. Um, and you say, Laura, I know you have, gun you're, you have guns. Can I borrow something for tonight? I'm terrified. Now I might invite you to my house instead, but I legally can't loan you a gun. Um, without doing a background check, I would have to take you to a gun store, we do a background check on you. And, um, but what if I've known Caitlin for 30 years, and I, I'm worried about her safety, we are both felons doing that, it adds those kinds of things, nobody is safer. During the testimony, they tried to say, well, you know, people who are buying guns on the street corner, are now breaking a law. Okay, they're breaking a law anyway. So that's that. Um, on the magazine limitations, um, it reduced the size of magazines that you can buy new today in Colorado to 15. California did something very similar. It expired and they then did a study to say, did this do anything? And I think it was a 15 year period that they were um, illegal. There was no difference, absolutely no difference. So when we look at what works, I mean, these things might sound good, and some of them are very logical. They sound very logical, but in practice, they don't actually help people. They don't actually reduce gun violence, which I think should be our goal. Okay, so you 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 you'd still oppose that the. Or you're still opposed to the background checks that we have in place now in Colorado? The NICS checks or the ones, the ones that were passed, that passed in 2000? Yeah. They, yeah. Um, and, and here's why. They don't do any good. They do absolutely no good. They, they give people a false sense of security that something's happening, that these legislators did something to make us safer, and they absolutely did not make us safer. But it could, in that situation, make both Caitlin and me felons mm -hmm. because I'm just trying to help out my friend overnight. Would you be opposed to like a, a gun licensing measure where, you know, you're the, the, the purchaser has to answer questions, maybe sit for an interview and has to be trained before they can purchase a gun? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very much opposed to that. Here's the thing. People who are people who go through um, concealed carry permits, those kinds of things, the most law abiding people in society, even more so than law enforcement. Um, what you say sounds completely logical. Shouldn't we put people through this thing? The people we're worried about are never going to go through that process. And so all it does is put something out there that sounds good to us, provides a, a, a false sense of security, but the people we're worried about, they're not going to follow these laws. It's just going to put more roadblocks in the way of law-abiding citizens. Well, I know you'd be opposed to like a, an assault weapon ban, which is what I'd like to see enacted. But let me just ask you, are there any gun control measures uh, or which ones do you think are reasonable? Uh, I wouldn't propose any more uh, gun control laws. I actually, um, one of my organizations, Coloradans for Civil Liberties, um, we say we're restoring freedom one round at a time. I think we, we should get back to 16 rounds and then 17 rounds and then 18 rounds. It shouldn't be, if you are a law-abiding citizen like the vast, vast majority are, um, it's not the government's job. And, and we might have some um, philosophical dif 
uh, disagreements on things like this, but it is not the government's job to make those very important decisions for us. Just like um, you probably spoke about in previous subjects, is it the government's job to make certain very important decisions in our lives? I put choice of self-defense, the manner, the kind, all of that stuff. I put all of that in that same bucket. Is it the government's job to tell me how I should best defend myself? How many bullets I need to defend me against a rape? No, that's my job, actually. So, and we may have some fil- philosophical difference on that, and that's um, that's perfectly fine. But I wouldn't sign up for any additional gun control. I'm actually looking to get some uh, gun rights back. Okay. So I want to, on that note, pivot to how that puts us or that position puts us with respect to other countries in the mm-hmm. world, how we compare. You know, the people on the left, uh, like me, we see America as an outlier in the rest of the world with respect to gun violence. We have uniquely weak gun laws. Um, and, uh, and again, like yourself, a lot of people who are opposed to any gun laws whatsoever. Um, other developed nations all require at least background checks or usually something more like the licensing uh, that I mentioned. Uh, and here we have very few barriers to buying a gun. Uh, Australia passed strong gun control years ago after a mass shooting, and recently, as you know, New Zealand uh, banned assault weapons after one mass shooting. In the United States, U.S. gun homicides are 25 times that of other high-income countries, and that's from a 2019 preventative medicine study. There's also an article that you might have looked at, Laura, we posted on Red Mom, Blue Mom. Um, It's dated December 10th, 2018, and it talks about how year 2018 you know, how the data compared to the rest of the world. There's these charts in there uh, that show, you know, homicides uh, by firearm per one million people. And you've got all the developed nations, you know, here at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then the United States up here uh, off the chart, almost, at, at, you know, 30 homicides per, uh, by firearm per one million people. So four, five, six, ten times greater than other developed countries. There's also charts there that show um, that assaults in the U.S. are um, three times more likely to involve guns than in other countries. They show our homicide rate compared to um, other developed countries, again, sort of off the charts compared to um, uh, compared to, to other countries. And the article talks about um, a 2016 review of 130 studies in 10 different countries which found that new legal restrictions, the ones I'm asking you about, um, restrictions on owning and purchasing guns, tended to be followed by a drop in gun violence. Um, and it cites some other studies that, that say that. So to me, it strikes me, it's, it's absurd how easy it is in the United States to go buy an assault rifle. You're an 18-year-old person exhibiting signs to others that you're a significant risk. You know, why do we allow this young, disturbed person to buy these weapons so easily? In my view, our Congress has failed us in their basic job of providing for our security. So, I mean, my, my thought is that one of the big differences in terms of the U.S. versus the other countries that you listed is is the Second Amendment, and I don't I don't want to just fall back on that as hey we've got a constitutional right everybody should be able to buy as many guns as they want, but the reality is we have a Second Amendment in the U.S. that protects 
a law-abiding citizen's right to, to own guns, and there are some restrictions and limitations around what those guns may be. And I, I appreciate that some on the left think that those should be, you know, culled back even more, right, even more restrictive. But that, to me, is, is a big difference. And I, I would echo maybe what Laura said. I think, you know, after we have these uh, terrible events like a Parkland, Florida shooting or like the uh, massacre of, of the um, deputy sheriff Parrish, you know, on and on, right? Terrible incidents um, resulting from gun violence. I think the solution often from those on the left is, hey, we need more laws. We need more, more, more laws. But I think the reality is the gun abiding law owner like myself or Laura or millions of others like us, sure, we're going to follow those laws. Of course, that's in the nature of our name, but but that's not the issue. I, I think you, you see examples where um, people that are committing those crimes, they're not law-abiding. They have broken the laws along the way to either collect weapons or have access to weapons or what have you. Not always, but often. And so the solution of let's just put more laws on top of it um, ultimately doesn't necessarily uh, solve the issue, I guess is my perspective. Right. And, and I think there's a little bit of an apples and oranges comparison on us versus other countries too. It's obviously way too early on New Zealand, but we've got a lot of data on Australia. And um, Australia has a huge um, illegal gun trade. Um, they've got uh, lots of terrorism, lots of gang violence, uh, lots of stuff going on. There are There is data since, and gosh, it's been a couple decades now since they've um, all, all but banned guns. There are some allowed. But rape has gone up, home burglary has gone up, home invasions have gone up. Criminals no longer fear that somebody in that house might be able to stop them with potentially lethal force. The other reason that there's kind of an apples and oranges comparison, and and I think you were going that direction, Caitlin, with um, discussion of the Second Amendment, um, this is a country that was founded on uh, repelling... (laughs) repelling the English using firearms. So it's, it's really part of, of the culture here. And, and I only say that to say that uh, if somebody said, let's ban all guns in the United States and confiscate all of them, it would just never happen. It's, a, it's too ingrained in our culture that th- we are self-reliant and, and we have the means to defend ourselves. The other thing that um, folks should always take a look at when they look at these, these um, homicide with guns numbers is they should add into the calculation in in places where it's harder to get guns, uh, what else happens outside of gun violence. So um, you have a sort of this resurgence, not resurgence, but a a insurgence of um, terrorists or gangs running people over with trucks or cars. They are just as dead if they get run over with a car. Bad people are going to be bad people flat out. If they if they really want to do something, they're going to get an illegal gun. They're going to um, make a bomb out of fertilizer. I mean, there's lots of things people can do, n- not just with guns. So when you look at the countries that have less gun violence, and they may be less violent countries in general, but you also have to look at where their crime happens and what type of crime. I was talking to a um, French journalist um, who, and we're having a very similar uh, conversation, um, as if France didn't have the Charlie Hebdo massacre, and they have incredible gun control, yet bad guys were able to get guns and go kill all those journalists. So gun control isn't working, and criminals can choose other things. So you really have to look at all of 
at all of the factors when you make um, when you look at those fact at those facts. Uh, I, I think the the data though is clear with the United States with with very few gun restrictions we have like I say one of the highest uh, gun homicide rates. Uh, you know it's, it's off the charts compared to other countries. Um, with respect to Australia, my understanding, and this is in, in that same article that we have posted on Red Mom, Blue Mom, um, that in fact the Australian murder rate has fallen to, to one per 100,000 since the ban, which is you know five times less than it is here. Uh, and also that robberies in Australia are occurring at about half the rate as, uh, as they are here. But I want to address Caitlin's point and yours about what makes our country different. Um, this the, the constitutionality argument. I want to be clear, and and this is where I sort of strongly disagree. Um, reasonable gun legislation, the kind that, that we're talking about here, the red flag law, other others that we're talking about, they don't violate the Second Amendment right to bear arms. They're not unconstitutional. The Supreme Court has ruled that the Second Amendment, which states you've got a right to bear arms, for example, gives you the right to own a handgun in your home. Um, that there's been jurisprudence on that. Other Supreme Court cases have have ruled that like most rights, the Second Amendment does have limits. So when courts are considering laws and whether they violate the Second Amendment, they have to look to you know, the government's interest in that law and, and how the law achieves that interest. And um, for example, with the red flag law, whether the government has an interest in preventing mass shootings and whether this law reasonably achie achieves it. And multiple courts and most decisions have held that reasonable, you know, some of these laws that I consider reasonable, um, reasonable gun control laws are not unconstitutional. They do not restrict unreasonably the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment. So why the continued rhetoric that even reasonable restrictions on gun ownership violate the Second Amendment? Well, and it's really who's defining reasonable um, because... Well, the courts. You are pointing to some things that you call reasonable that I don't consider reasonable at all. The the red flag legislation, again, let's be clear, as as it was passed in Colorado, this does not apply to other states that have had um, more protections for the gun owner, aren't, aren't documented anywhere to actually make people safe. And I want to keep coming back to this to say, if, if something isn't demonstrated to keep people safe, we absolutely should not be doing it. And, um, and by the way, sheriffs... Um, are as concerned about Fourth Amendment on the Colorado red flag law as they are about the Second. So it's not just about the Second Amendment. And I think Caitlin was just talking about how we're a little bit uh, different here in uh, in the United States. And then last on this study uh, that you were talking about in Australia, um, I've seen. I believe I've seen that same study. You can look at stud at uh, different data sets for different studies. I've seen something that says completely the opposite, including interviewing people who live there and are seeing and feeling on a daily basis how um, how much the crime's gone up. What so. about the study I met, or the, the article I mentioned that says there's 130 studies in 10 different countries that show that there's a correlation between um, gun legislation, things like licensing, things that you know I would consider reasonable gun legislation, and, and safety. Sure. This, this is a document. There is documented um, evidence that these laws make us safer. Sure. And, and with red flag laws, you know, there's been uh, guns now taken away from several people in the in the states where these laws have passed uh, that um, where these people had made threats yeah. on schools. Yeah. So I'd say macro and and um, micro. Um, there's an answer here. When you look at all of the United States and say our laws are the loosest, that's not 
um, universally the same. Um, Wyoming is different than Chicago, let's say. And and when you break down um, the states in the U.S., the cities in those states that have the biggest gun crime, they are the cities with the uh, most restrictive gun control. So you can't you can't just look at that high level United States murder by gun number and the the um, some sort of an average of gun control laws because um, Washington D.C. Um, huge gun control, huge gun crime, Chicago, Detroit, um, over and over again. But Wyoming, Texas, Oklahoma, places with um, less restrictive gun control laws, they just don't have those murder um, or gun violence problems. And again, I just, I, 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 the, the, the balancing that we're trying to do, um, you know, 55 people died last year in school shootings. There were 328 mass shootings. These were on record gun violence in America. And by way of comparison, we have more public mass shootings than any other country in the world. Um, firearms, I read, are actually the second leading cause of death of children in the United States. And that's according to the CDC. And in addition to these deaths, um, I read an article recently about the domino effect that this trauma has on everyone in the community. So maybe two people die at a school shooting, but all of their friends, the entire school and then the entire community, you know, suffers this. So millions of people, apparently something like 60% of Americans know someone or, you know, who is affected by gun violence. So it's a big enough problem that, um, that I think uh, that, it, that it needs to be um, addressed. Um, okay, so Laura, I know we're going to run out of time here. We really appreciate you joining us. I just wanted to leave our listeners with, with one more thing to think about, I guess. We're not going to have any time to really delve into it. But as I mentioned in the very beginning, one of the uh, main reasons why many on the left in particular uh, have voiced support for this law is because they believe it'll, it will reduce suicides. And we touched a little bit on the kind of the mental health aspects, if any, right. related to the red flag law, at least here in Colorado. But ostensibly, the law is at least in part to help with mental health. Although, we can't get into the details. I would just put out there for listeners to really think about and challenge how does this law positively uh, impact mental health and in particular suicides. Um, I mentioned that some of the other states that have had red flag laws for quite a few years, including Indiana and Connecticut, we have some data from those states. And and Laura, you've been very vocal about let's see what's actually working. Um, In Indiana, they've had a red flag law since 2005. They did see a decrease in aggregate suicide. So potentially you could attribute some of that to red flags. But in Connecticut, where the law has been in place since 1999, they saw a reduction in firearm-related suicides, but that was offset by an increase in non-firearm suicides. So um, is that right or wrong? I'm not sure, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there. I think there's similar data from Australia that they saw after the the gun ban and gun confiscation that they did quite a few years ago, a similar result where they saw a decrease in firearm-related suicides and maybe other uh, violent encounters as well, but then that was offset by an increase. So just something for our listeners to think about, right? If If this bill is to help reduce suicides, will it actually achieve? that goal right yeah and um and we do see different um solution or different results in different states but i think you're both right and i'm grateful that we had this time to talk uh, mostly about the red flag um law that passed in colorado and if your listeners are interested we could do an hour on so many different things including school safety that came up um suicides um you know, all different kinds of things so um, if you have a need for that in the future i'd be happy to come back and address those topics very specifically uh thank you laura and to just briefly summarize and correct me if i misstate 
Um, I understand, uh, I hear your position on choice and the, uh, the, the need to have the ability to protect oneself and, and to choose uh, firearms to do so. Um, I hear your skepticism on whether gun laws actually make us safer in reality. And I think it's safe to say, uh, Caitlin, you agree. Um, I think we agree on, um, we agree that less gu gun violence is good. We agree that mentally ill people shouldn't have guns. We agree um, that gun rights are ingrained in our culture. And uh, we agree that the right to bear arms is, is in the Constitution. Um, we also agree on a need for due process. I guess where we disagree is uh, on a number of issues, we, but we disagree in particular whether the Second Amendment um, provides a right to bear arms without any limitations at all. Um, I'm especially passionate about this because I think that uh, the Second Amendment um, or the interpretation of it that we discussed today uh, can put even my children in harm's way. So, you know, we, we agree on some things, we disagree on others. I do want to sincerely thank you, Laura, for being thank here. Thank you. Um, listeners, we're really grateful to have Laura Carno here. She is a renowned gun rights activist, um, and she's the founder of the Faster Organization and has a book entitled Government Ruins Nearly Everything. Please check it out. Thank you, Laura, for being here. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.